0: Welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the tenaciously young, steadfastly hip, and resolutely lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Olga Skira. Hey guys And Zach David.
1: Feels good to be back It mm-hmm.
2: does We're yes. all so tan too From Australia yeah. Well Ashley and I are tan Come on Zach is <laughs> Kinda people, yeah. You didn't have
1: to People can't see me You didn't have to throw <laughs> Yeah have that's
2: to why des- We have to explain yeah, it we have well. to Describe things in the studio Just before like our this tans. Olga
1: gave me a rare compliment <laughs> And I think she decided That was too much
2: I know I had to go back To my old
1: trolling ways Anyway But we are back from Australia And, and we've got a great episode For you today We do And what are we drinking With this episode Oh we're drinking some uh, gin that was gifted to us from our host we uh, are so excited our
0: host in Australia yeah,
1: our host in Australia so this is Australian gin South Australian gin in fact it's Margaret River Distilling Company uh, this is Giniversity what they call it so we've poured some of this into a cup with some soda water and lime and are enjoying a nice refreshing beverage
0: yes yeah, so thank you so much again to our hosts in Adelaide they were so generous in being hosts and they mm-hmm. gave us gin and some wine love and when people friendship. give us booze <laughs> Also booze. (laughs)
2: And who are we talking to this week, Olga? This week we're talking to Brianna Maturi. She is the director of Loyola Marymount University's consent program called LMU Cares. um, And she helps to educate students about consent and what consent really means for young teenagers in college.
1: Yeah, we thought this was an important and an interesting topic and a timely one especially with all the conversations happening nationally about what consent means especially in light of the me too era to look at like what's happening at this Jesuit university and how they're teaching students to really have important and hard conversations about what consent is
2: and we're just excited to talk to Brianna not just about what consent looks like on college campuses but how it why it is important to have in all relation in adult relationships as well
0: Yep. But first, it's time for Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sip through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. First, Pope Francis made history this week. He became the first pope to visit the Arabian Peninsula when he made a three-day trip to the United Arab Emirates, um, where he had uh, high-level dialogues on religious freedom and also celebrated the largest mass ever um, on the Arabian Peninsula.
1: And why did the pope go? on this trip, Olga.
0: Yeah. So the purpose
2: of this trip was to encourage interreligious dialogue and support the one million Catholics in the region, most of whom are migrant workers from the Philippines and India.
1: Church officials also thought this would be good at trying to like build up the Christian community there, right?
0: Yeah. So there is a degree of religious freedom in UAE more so than other places like Saudi Arabia. Um, Christians can worship. There are churches, but they have to get land grants from the government. Um, they can't promote their faith in the media or in public. Um, So Pope Francis thought by bringing attention to this, he could kind of support this Catholic community that does struggle not only with um, the restrictions around religion, but as migrant workers who don't have full rights in the country. Um, And he actually, he came away with one success. Uh, On Monday night, the crown prince of the UAE UAE donated land on which a church and a mosque will be built side by side as like a symbol of...
1: Religious unity and tolerance. And that's really exciting. And also, uh, I was kind of... You might be surprised by this, but like there are a lot of critics about the Pope going here, especially because of the UAE's role in the war in Yemen, right? Yes.
0: Yeah, so there's been a war going on in Yemen for the past four years that doesn't get in the headlines very often, but it is the world's worst humanitarian crisis right now. Um Over 80,000 children have starved to death by this uh, civil war in which Saudi Arabia and countries like the UAE and the United States um, have led this proxy war against Iran-backed rebels in Yemen.
2: And hours before he departed to the UAE, the Pope said that he was monitoring this crisis with great worry, stating that he's paying attention to the children who are hungry, thirsty, and who don't have medicine. And direct quote, the cry of these children and their parents rises up to God.
1: And so I think people were critical because they thought the Pope by going was sort of sort of giving cover to their role in this war.
0: Right. Which I mean, I think that could be a legitimate concern if the Pope didn't address it. But he did address it, as Olga said. Um, And by going to by going to the UAE, he raised up this conflict that a lot of people aren't talking about. um, And, you know drew attention to a very terrible humanitarian crisis.
1: Yeah, I, I was thinking of when the Pope uh, went to Myanmar um, a couple years ago and people thought he might be he's sort of giving cover to another human rights abuse there, there of the Rohingya people. And uh, I think the same thing. I think the Pope, by going to these places and having these conversations, often shines a light on... Uh, things we're not talking about, and also the Pope has also gone to the United States, and we also have a very troubling involvement in the war in Yemen, and it's he didn't necessarily not go for that. So I think there's selective outrage with some of these.
0: Yeah, um, which kind of leads well to our next story, which is uh, from Cuba, where the uh, Pope has also been involved in engaging with the government that we don't always agree with, um, in the in pursuit of you know helping. Catholics in that country.
1: That's right. And so uh, over the weekend, the first new Catholic church in Cuba since the country's revolution 60 years ago was inaugurated. And this is really significant because the church, like in recent memory, has not had a great relationship in Cuba, right?
2: Correct. So under communism, churches were closed and priests were exiled or assigned to re-education camps. And the church was actually driven underground until religious tensions in the country began to ease in the 1990s.
0: Yeah. And the Catholic church has been very active in um, in promoting religious freedom in cuba um uh pope john paul ii i believe went there in the 90s Mm -hmm. um and then pope francis has also gone there um and we're seeing the fruit of that uh so that there's this one church that opened last weekend but two more are also planned to be open um so it's a sign of you know greater freedom on the island as
1: Um, a result of direct engagement um with respectful dialogue i think Yeah. what's our next story olga
2: So recently, some Catholics are calling for Governor Cuomo of New York to be excommunicated for new late term abortion laws. What
1: do these laws say? Yeah.
2: So
0: uh, on January 22nd, uh, the anniversary of Roe v. Wade, uh, the Reproductive Health Act uh, removed abortion from New York's criminal code and also now permits abortions with very few restrictions at any week of pregnancy. So more. It makes it easier to access Mm -hmm. late term abortions. It makes it so um, non-doctors can perform these procedures. Um, and lawmakers in other states like Virginia and Rhode Island are pushing similar legislation.
1: Yeah. And Governor Cuomo, is, who is Catholic, was a strong backer of this bill and celebrated its passing, which is sort of why there are some Catholics who are debating whether or not Uh, he should be excommunicated for his role in the passing of this bill.
0: Correct. So some Catholics petitioned Cardinal Timothy Dolan, uh, the Archbishop of New York, to excommunicate Cuomo, and another bishop in uh, Tennessee has said he would do that if a lawmaker had supported similar legislation in his state. Um,
1: But, but But it has to be from Cardinal Dolan, because he's under Cardinal Dolan's jurisdiction, canonically, legally, correct? Correct.
2: And the cardinal said through a spokesperson that under canon law, excommunication is not an appropriate response to a politician who supports or votes for legislation advancing abortion and that issues regarding abortion should be addressed personally and directly with offending politicians. And
0: Zach, you you decided you'd be our resident canon law expert and dig into what canon law actually says about this. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you do get automatically excommunicated if you procure an abortion, right?
1: Yeah. So anyone who procures or assist in, in a specific instance of an abortion, th- uh, there is sort of what's considered an automatic excommunication, which is different than what people are calling for for Governor yeah. Cuomo. So which the question
0: is, if a lawmaker who supports this is close enough to the actual act to be considered morally implicated?
1: Yeah. And I think, uh, I think most canon lawyers are saying that there has to it has to be attached to a specific instance, and there's a not a sort of an untenable connection between supporting a law that allows for it and the specific instance of it happening. But there are some canon lawyers who are arguing under sort of this canon on heresy, so denying a credenda teaching of the church. So this is a sort of a deeply held truth based on magisterium or revelation or scripture or something, and they say that. The killing of an innocent being, which abortion is, would fall under that. And so denying that that is immoral would result in an excommunication.
0: Okay. So Cardinal Dolan thinks it's more productive and within church teaching to take another route, which is, you know, speaking with lawmakers directly and talking about why this is problematic. <laughs> um, because excommunication, he says, wouldn't actually lead to the healing that canon law it's supposed to promote
1: no it's, it, it is there these canonical penalties are meant to heal and i think there's a great worry among um, a lot of bishops and a lot of canon lawyers that you're taking the sacrament and using it to settle a political argument and there's a huge danger in that and sort of just on a bear on a practical standpoint you're not likely to get your desired outcome
0: and that's why there is a lot of caution among bishops and priests a- a- around using excommunication to solve what are political matters
2: And Catholics are actually encouraged by church teaching to get involved in political matters in other ways, which leads to our next story.
0: Yes, it does. The bishops in Illinois have come out um, with a statement against the legalization of marijuana.
1: Yeah, so this is up for uh, debate in the Illinois House. They're considering legalizing uh, uh, recreational marijuana because medicinal marijuana is already legal. Um, And the bishops are not alone in their opposition to the legalization of recreational marijuana.
0: Yeah, there's been like a... Backlash, I've noticed, and uh, not just me, The New Yorker has also noticed. <laughs> they've they've published a cover story uh, by Malcolm Gladwell pointing to, like, the more troubling things around marijuana use. For a while, it was considered kind of just, like, harmless, but...
1: But yeah, now there's a new, a new book out, and this is where Malcolm Gladwell picks up. And a lot of people are, are sort of reviewing it. Um, it's called Tell Your Children by Alex Berenson. He's a former New York Times reporter where he's looking at the link between uh, increased marijuana use um, and schizophrenia and uh, violence from psychotic uh, episodes. And so a lot of people are sort of questioning, is weed as actually OK as we think it is with all these new laws coming up?
2: Right. And and there's good reason for the bishops to care about something like this. You know, marijuana is addictive. And they also said we hear of the opioid crisis and the lives that it claims. And they state that if marijuana is legalized, this is only going to contribute to that problem.
0: Which, you know, that's a debatable claim to draw the connection between marijuana use and opioids. Um, But, you know, I think anytime you're using a mind altering substance, there's a moral debate to have around it. Um, we had this debate at American Magazine back in 2013, and the editors actually came out in favor of legalization more because of the effect that the criminalization has had um, on incarceration and the policing of communities of color.
1: Yeah. And the bishops do point to that in in their letter, that it has negatively impacted, especially people of color, the policing of marijuana.
0: So we wanted to just bring this to your attention because these are conversations that are going to be coming up as more and more states move towards legalization. What's our next story, Zach?
1: So our next story comes from the Midwest, where the University of Notre Dame has decided to uh, cover up some murals that they had hanging up depicting uh, Christopher Columbus interacting with Native American populations, indigenous populations in sort of a, a positive way. And this is causing a lot of controversy in and around South Bend.
0: Yeah. So the people who defend having up these murals say that they they were created at a time when the Catholic population themselves were, you know, Catholic immigrants who faced anti-Catholic bias in the United States and that Christopher Columbus was lifted up as an example of how you can be both Catholic and American, but obviously not Everyone feels that way.
2: Right, right. And a lot of the criticism has come that, you know, as Zach mentioned, these statues are depicting Columbus in a really positive way, which for people who have for Native Americans and marginalized communities in America. There isn't this association with Columbus as the savior. So a lot of people were critical of quite the opposite. In fact, there have been
1: genocidal impacts.
2: Exactly. They have a very dark history with colonialism and figures like Columbus. So to them, this was a complete slight against the plight of Native Americans in this country.
1: Yeah. And Notre Dame's president, Father John Jenkins, said that the murals weren't intended to slight indigenous peoples, but to encourage another marginalized groups, the Catholics. But he received some feedback from indigenous rights groups on campus. And he, after listening to them and sort of adjusting for the changing understanding of Columbus in history, decided that a different action needed to be taken. And I think we all agreed this was a good move. Yes? Yeah. Yes. Agreed.
2: <laughs> because we we have to acknowledge when Catholics have done wrong and we got to dispute any misleading um, sort of revisionist moments that we have about history in this country. So I, I'm in favor of this. And I think it's a great example by Father John Jenkins. us on Skype today is Brianna Mature. She is the director of LMU Cares, a program at Loyola Marymount that provides students with resources on sexual and interpersonal misconduct and prevention on campus. Welcome to Jesuitical.
0: Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And what what was going on on campus that prompted uh, you to create LMU Cares? Was there a specific event or a trend that you saw that you thought was troubling and that needed to be addressed through, through the program? Um, so I would say two
3: things were happening. Um, first, uh, you have of what was happening on a national trend so in 2011 we had the dear colleague letter that came out to campuses uh, that really challenged campuses to consider a new set of guidelines and this was from dealing. the
0: obama administration
3: yes this was under the obama administration um, from the office of civil rights uh, in the department of education um, in 2013 you also had the reauthorization of the violence against women act and then of course you had just what was happening nationally there was the time magazine where the cover was the collegiate pennant that just said rape on it it was all over the place in terms of media so that's that's starting to happen um but on our campus one of the things that happened was that uh, every summer our senior vice president um will meet with student leaders and a group of our resident advisors came to our senior vice president in the summer of uh 2012 2013 and said Dr. Bovee, we know that we are a Catholic Jesuit institution, um, but we need to figure out a way to talk about topics such as healthy relationships and consent, because we see our peers dealing with them in the residence halls. And so there must be a way for us to address this on our campus. And she really took that to heart. And so um, she pulled me. Uh, I was working as the assistant director of housing at the time. And you know she shoulder tapped me and asked me to transition to work directly in her office and develop something that, uh, that could be comprehensive um, and values-based and really speak to our student body. And so once we had the curriculum on, in place, we had two different tracks. One is the required education that all students have to complete at LMU.
1: So this is required for all students at like orientation? So they're having yes. ha- how many sessions? What, what's that look like?
3: So um, it's a a tiered actually, um, but in terms of in-person education around consent specifically, LMU Cares now has about 10 hours of required education for all incoming students on topics from alcohol and drugs, consent and bystander intervention, intercultural dialogue and implicit bias. So we start off uh, doing an orientation session. It's about a 300 person in a room at a time. So I feel like I'm, you know, kind of doing my campus wide comedy tour um, because (laughs) while it's, it's a serious, you know, conversation but imagine, imagine being 18. Imagine it being the Saturday before you start classes. And so we kind of, I couch it, the curriculum and starting off talking about the hookup culture on college campuses, uh, which gets them laughing because, you know, I say, okay, I know you've got two days away from classes. There's a lot on your mind, I'm sure. And I'm sure the number one thing you're thinking about is, you know, and then I pull up the slide, the hookup culture, and they all, you know, kind of start laughing. And, um, And then I say, and I know what else you're thinking, but, you know, how can we talk about the hookup culture without, And then my next slide is a picture of St. Ignatius. And, you know, and I'm like, if you don't know already, you're at a Catholic institution.
0: (laughs) Well, yeah, I want to I want to ask you about that, because I don't know. I have the impression that it would be hard to have these conversations at—I went to a public school—to have mm-hmm. to have them at a Catholic school where the official line is, you shouldn't be having sex outside of marriage. So how do you mm-hmm. talk about the hookup culture when, mm-hmm. in theory, these encounters shouldn't be happening?
1: Well, and there, I feel like there's an analog with alcohol use, too, in the sense—when I, I went to Loyola, there— Obviously, the law is you're not supposed to drink until you're 21. But the school was mm-hmm. also still at the same time providing resources mm-hmm. for when mm-hmm. you find yourself in a troubling situation at a social event or whatever that you can intervene in a helpful way.
3: Absolutely. And to be honest, the most challenging part is, and the stu- you know, I think this is what the students were saying when they came to the senior vice president. But our students, whether you're going to a Catholic institution or not, are struggling with these issues. They are struggling with what is and what is not consent. Um, they're struggling with the intersection of how alcohol does, you know, intersect with social interactions and whether that be hookup culture or not. And so what we want to do, and I always say is I want to empower students by equipping them with knowledge and empowering them to follow their own values and to support each other in following their own values. We do a lot of breaking down, um, Myths, you know, so we do a lot of social norming. And so we use some anonymous polling software where we ask them, you know, how many times did they hook up in their senior year of high school? And then we ask them how many times did their do you think your peers hooked up? And five years going strong every time they think their peers are hooking up four, five, six times. And But they're reporting hooking up zero or maybe one time, you know, and showing them that there's this perception out there that's not true, right? We want you to follow your values. You've come to a values-based institution, and not only does the institution support that, but your peers will support it as well.
1: Can you think of like a specific example that really told you that, oh, students are struggling with this? Like, is there a hard conversation that really like jolted you or something?
3: Yeah, I think probably, I I mean, there's so many, uh, to be honest, but um, I think some of the most um, uh, impactful, uh, one is I was doing a bystander program. um, And we have a video that students created uh, that really looks at a situation, a a campus party from the bystander perspective. Um, And afterwards, uh, I did this program four times in two weeks. And Twice after two of the programs, a young woman stayed behind after everyone else left and said, "I just want you to know that that video is my story. That's
1: that's how I was assaulted." What is the sto- what is the video depict?
3: Yeah, it depicts a, a campus party, right? So you've got um uh, the, you're hearing a story from four different people. You're hearing this uh, the story told um, from the young woman um, who has been assaulted. You are hearing the story from the young man who is being accused of the assault, but. You can see in the story, he legitimately does not realize that his actions crossed a line, which is kind of actually the secondary story. The, the more prominent story is that you hear the story um, also being told back from her friend's perspective, as well as his friend's perspective. And then the third one is the party's host perspective. And all of these bystanders talk about I didn't, it didn't even occur to me, right? It didn't occur to me that this was not okay. It didn't occur to me that there could be a problem. It didn't occur to me that someone else wasn't looking out for those two, right? What do I know? Like, I thought her friend was looking out. Or, and so it's really, um, I mean, it really, even every time I, I watch it, even though I've seen it a lot of times, gives me goosebumps because I think it's real. Um, I think it's genuine. Um, and I—and the fact that I've had women come up and say, that's that's my story, right? That's how I felt the morning after. And, and where did my friend go? And why weren't his friends intervening? Or why didn't the host stop serving? It's just all so complicated. And it's real. It's all coming from our students' input um, and So, yeah, I think that that tells me the impact that it's having as well as the importance of doing it um, very genuinely from a student perspective.
2: Right. And I think from just from my own experience, I went to Fordham and I entered Fordham when I was 17 years old. And Mm -hmm. we never had anything like this. And now I'm 29 and now I'm having conversations with my male friends. And I'm shocked by how we have a very different understanding of what consent means. And my friend, my male friends are not awful human beings, and it's just the reality of how. That one word can mean two very different things to one man and one woman, you know, and it made mm-hmm. me realize when, now that I'm almost sturdy, you know, that consent isn't really just something that people that is important for people in college settings or in sexual encounters that you might have. It's something that affects you as an adult as well. Um, so can you tell us kind of how having a deeper understanding of consent, what it means and how that can help you in a work situation or even in, in marriage?
3: Oh, absolutely! As you said, it doesn't stop, right? Just because you're in college, um, we have interpersonal relationships our entire life. Whether it is, if you look at the again, what's happening on a national, uh, the national scene right now, whether it's within the you know the movie and television industry, whether it's with politics. So many people are experiencing sexual harassment in the workplace and now it's coming to light. That's not okay, Right. Unfortunately, I see this when I partner up with some of our community partners that are domestic violence shelters or the rape treatment center. You know, they are seeing many um, people using their resources that are in marriages. And that's the thing. Consent doesn't stop when you get married. Consent doesn't stop when you leave college. It, It goes on on and on. And I think by having our students be well-educated and well-versed and be able to really engage on a deep discourse about consent, we're doing two things. We're sending um, young adults into the world who are better equipped and more empowered to stand up for themselves um, and to acknowledge that something's not okay. But also the flip side, we're sending people into the world who will be future supervisors and bosses and industry leaders who can shift culture, right? And I think if we're truly going to shift culture, we need to, it, it's, you know, I say on our campus all the time, this is not a woman's issue. This is not, um, you know, uh, this is not a student issue. This is a community issue. And all people on our campus um, need to feel empowered to be part of the solution if we're going to truly shift culture.
0: So what does that look like when you, whether it's in college or in a workplace, um, and you, you see a troubling situation, what, what should you do? what are What are some concrete things you tell students about being a a responsible bystander?
3: Yeah. So the first thing I remind them is that this is not just about you stepping in for people you know, um, but remember, our dignities are connected. That's part of being fully alive, right? Um, so first try to empower them with that information. And then talking through, we, we, we'll do a lot of scenarios, um, but with in terms of um, bystander intervention, talking about the step number one is to be aware. I've equipped you with what is and is not consent. I've equipped you with signs of what does look okay and what does not look okay. So So you use that raised awareness to be aware about what's happening around you. Um, Then take responsibility, right? If in our nation tradition, if we are men and women for and with others, you know, be that man or woman for and with others. Um, Again, even if it is someone you don't know, and then finally step in. And we talk about different strategies for stepping in, right? That doesn't necessarily mean you personally have to go and do it. Um, maybe it's getting help, right, to do it. And that could be just someone else who's a friend of yours in that situation. Maybe it's an authority. So if you're at, you know, if you're at a bar, get the the bouncer. If you are at, um, you know, if you are in the workplace, go and find, uh, you know, the a supervisor or someone you trust. Um, maybe it's getting, it's more serious. Maybe it's getting law enforcement or if you're on a campus public safety involved right or you know maybe it's being able to find a way to distract the situation so you can get one of the people away you know and kind of get them into a safer space so we talk through some of those strategies um, but i think the first two steps are the most important is that first you have to be aware of what's happening you know and then secondly you need to know that we all should be taking responsibility um that you know again our dignities are connected um, and so i think once you can kind of be empowered to feel that way strategizing how you're going to actually step in becomes a little bit easier.
0: So you you mentioned earlier how there's when you ask students about hooking up, they think there's a lot more hooking up going on than there actually is. Um, And there have been studies that show that, that young people are actually having less sex and are less likely to be in relationships. So it seems like like consent is obviously like a central issue, but there's also like a larger issue of people not knowing how to have Healthy relationships at all? Um, do do you try to help with that situation? Like talk about relationships more broadly.
3: Absolutely, we do. You know, and actually, I'm in the process of developing even other uh, programming. But absolutely, we do uh, do programming just on healthy relationships, ha- how to have interpersonal relationships. Do you do you yeah.
0: see that kids? Do they do? In your perception, does it seem like people are dating less, having less I don't... relationships?
3: Yeah, I don't think my students are dating. Uh, I think this is a trend we're seeing across the country. But I think students and and I laugh with them um, all the time. I had a uh, a male student last year come to me and he was like, you know, I, I kind of like this girl in my class. And I was like, great. So what are you going to do about it? He's like, well, I texted her and I asked her if she wanted to hang out. And I was like, what? Uh, d- what? No. <laughs> you know, it's kind of funny to me. I'm like, if someone texted me and wanted to hang out, I would not have any idea you have you know, a romantic interest in me, right? And so I think, you know, I, I definitely think this generation has moved away from that. Um and I think what's funny is that when we talk about consent, I think people automatically think consent sex and I mean, think about it. Consent, if you think about kindergarten kids, right? You know, if if we should be teaching, you know, kindergarten kids before you run up and, and hug that other kid, does that kid want to be hugged, right? How do we, consent starts at very basic, you know, human interactions. And so, um, you know, I think even with healthy relationships, you know, we see a lot of students because I think dating is not a thing. And I, I think we have not done a great job, um, kind of continuing to teach about interpersonal relationships. We see a lot of students who don't know how to deal with rejection. So maybe they've asked someone out um, and being given that no is a is 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 heart wrenching, right? And then they act out in an inappropriate way. Um, You know, maybe, you know, they start verbally harassing someone because they don't know how to take that interpersonal rejection. Um, Or maybe they don't know how to even look at social cues. Maybe they haven't been so direct to say, hey, will you go out with me? But, you know, the other person is kind of come ends up coming to the office and saying this person's kind of creeping me out. Like they keep showing up at work when I'm there and, and at the library and I'm actually not interested, but they won't take the hint. And so we have two issues happening there, right? Well, one, have you been honest with this person about your feelings? that maybe they haven't taken the hint because you actually haven't given one, but also the flip side, this person hasn't like noticed the, the lack of interested body language. And so there's a lot with healthy relationships that I think that we should be doing and can be doing um, on college campuses.
1: We have time for one last question, and it's what we ask all our guests. If you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, who would it be and why?
3: Yeah, so I I listened to a few episodes yesterday and so I knew this was coming and um, I have been trying uh, very hard to find something uh, clever to say to this, but I keep Coming back to the only uh, genuine, honest answer I can think of, and that is I would canonize probably my mother. Uh, she passed away a few years ago at a, at a young age from cancer. But when I think about a few things, both uh, her life um, and how she lived it, uh, teaching everyone around her how to love unconditionally. Um, and uh, not to mention that she, uh, every time we got a new car, she did bless our cars with holy water. Um <laughs> But also, I think in her passing, um, there were a number, as I mentioned earlier, there's a number of times in my life that I've struggled with my relationship with religion and spirituality. And there are a number of moments, particularly in the week leading up to her passing and um, in the moment of her passing that really, uh, and I gave a talk about this at a Kairos once, um, but that really uh, kind of Tested my beliefs um, and really uh, introduced me to uh, where I might need to be present to God at all places. So, so I would have to go with my mom.
1: What was your mom's name?
3: Her name, uh, uh, Irene, or in Spanish, Irene.
1: Irene, Santa Irene. Pray for yeah, us. Yes. <laughs> awesome, Th- Rihanna. Thank you so much for all the work you're doing and for talking to us. This has been really good. Thank you. Yeah,
3: thank you. Thank you all.
1: Awesome. And all right. where can people find out more about uh, LMU Cares and Consent?
3: Sure. Um, I would uh, definitely direct people uh, to our website, lmu.edu backslash LMU Cares. We have uh, some visuals on uh, our consent and bystander intervention models um, and uh, more information about what we do there.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you you so
3: much. Thank you. Bye. Thank you.
0: it's time for some housekeeping. We want to make a special request of our listeners this week that they leave an iTunes review.
1: Yeah, they help us out a lot. And if it's not iTunes, wherever you download the podcast, if you could rate us and review us, that helps other people find the podcast in addition to telling people by word of mouth.
0: All right, now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God this week and where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Zach?
1: So I've got a consolation this week and it's sort of an experience of... uh gratitude and feeling drawn into deeper gratitude but it stems from kind of a funny thing at mass this past sunday i had sat in a full pew just for a random sunday in ordinary time it was totally full not to say that the whole church was full
0: but it certainly had nothing to do with the super bowl I'm i sure.
1: think people were coming earlier so i was at the eleven fifteen. <laughs> but i think that for me just felt like oh wow i'm in my parish and actually the last seats that were filled what were from uh my friend that was over at my house on Friday, uh, who's in my men's group. And I like motioned to them that they could sit down. And so I was just feeling overwhelmed with gratitude for this parish, this community, um, feeling full. And oftentimes that's not a common experience. I think in church, the only time you, there's a full church is Christmas and Easter. And while I'm praying after communion, I overwhelmed by this gratitude. was sort of drawn to sit with it more. I felt God saying like, okay, you have this gratitude. You can direct it to me and just sort of let that go deeper into that. And so now I'm doing that this week, but recognizing that this feeling that I have is impacting the rest of my life and so, sort of trying to unpack that in my prayer this week has been my consolation.
0: I was, I was at the 6 p.m. mass, and <laughs> it, was, <laughs> <empty>. <laughs> it was not full. It was not full. <laughs> You were not in a full pew, Ashley. <laughs> <laughs> nope. Uh, I had the pew to myself. <laughs> <laughs> All
1: right. What do you what do you have, Olga?
2: Um, so I've also got a consolation this week. Um, one of the great things about working in America is that I have the privilege of working as a writer. Um, and my co-hosts know and anyone who follows me on Twitter. Um, for the past six to eight months, I wanna say I've been working on this piece that was finally published. Um, and it I got to talk to a lot of black Catholics um in preparation for this piece. Um, and a lot of them shared their joys and sorrows about being in the church, um, why they're so frustrated. Um, And it was really wonderful to see them, despite all of these hardships that they faced, to still see how much they love this church and to see how much they love God. Um, And the consolation for me was in just seeing their witness and just knowing that their experience of staying in the church um, and just staying in it and demanding that it do better and be better for not just them, for the whole church, Um, it was just really consoling and really wonderful to just be able to experience that through their stories.
0: Yeah, and it is an amazing feature article that everyone should go read right now as soon as they finish this episode. I
1: posted it in the Facebook group, so check, (laughs) the link is there (laughs) if you've missed out on it. What do you got, Ashley?
0: I also have a consolation, um, which came out of my desolation from last week. So I talked about last week having this like moment of like. Extreme like insecurity about not being able to articulate my faith journey and not really and then that insecurity leading me to just like doubt that I even had like a strong faith after college to talk about. Um, and so I shared that uh, at our live show in Australia and afterwards um, these two two people came up to me and just told me like how much that resonated with them and that you know that. My my moment of weakness was for them a consolation, which, like, I know we are told God works through our weaknesses, but, like, to actually concretely see that, like, this moment when, like, I was full of doubt and, like, not feeling great, that that actually meant something to other people. God was working through that. Um that was that was consoling. It was like a moment where like I really felt like this this thing we do consolations and desolations wasn't just like a performative thing but like a ministry and that even when I don't feel like it is God can still work through it.
1: It's amazing. I feel I don't try to do this every week cuz yeah. I think it would be cheesy, but I think there's like a common theme in all of these that we're not alone, right? Like yeah. we're we're together in a lot of this. And so that I think yeah. is a meta consolation this week. <laughs> Wow. Wow. All right. (laughs) Get us out of here, Ashley.
0: All right. Jesuitical is brought to you by America Media and produced by Eloise Blondio. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Adverbs provided by Rachel Carey. Jesuit Formation provided by Eric Sundrup, SJ. Engineering by Kieran Freeman. And our live studio audience this week provided by Allie Davis. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Shout out this week to Irish Girl22. And send us your questions, feedback, cocktail recipe, and tell us where you found God this week at jesuitical at americamedia.org. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Olga Segura and Zach Davis. We'll see you next week.